All right. Let's uh, let's start with a a word of prayer, and then I'll hand out the hand the handouts. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with your word and with your spirit. Give to us ears to hear your will and hearts to follow you in love and to love our neighbors, those you put into our lives, those whom you've redeemed to be your own. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Okay, so I perceived last time that I taught that some felt disenfranchised for not getting the whole packet all at once. So everybody gets the whole packet. And not only that, you get the whole packet bound and stapled. Not just, not just single sheets stapled together. This is, I mean, this took an extra click on the copy machine, so I hope that you... That's right, and so now I, where, I, where I improved by uh, giving you a better copy, I, I decreased by writing handwritten notes on it, so you certainly can. That's good. I'm, uh, I, I decided to, ju- I'm just going to cave and, because I, 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 I realized that my, my notes are not, that my thoughts are not conducive to being presented in outline form and so I shouldn't, I should just capitulate and write things down as they occur to me, which is kind of what I was doing here. So, boy, is that, it's a little loud, isn't it? I got it, wait yeah, it was quiet on Joy Group. Maybe I'll just move it way down here. Can you hear me? Is this okay right there? All right. So the first question is, um, do, what are your questions? This was, maybe it was just that I was too tired when I read this last night. I was like, huh? Right. Good. Okay. That's perfect. Fantastic. I do think that we should spend a chunk of time going through the argumentation because it is not... It, while, the, so C.S. Lewis has this great clarity, but he, said, he, 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 he kind of brings you, he brings you around, and so sometimes you wonder where he's going, what, how this applies to his big argument, right? Um, and it's helpful to, have to, to, to gather that together and, and to sort of see if we can summarize for ourselves what his argumentation is. Uh, before we do that for this week's reading, what, what about uh, the last two weeks? Where are we in his argument at this point, what have you covered up through last week? Here, I can, I can hang on to that. No, I'll, I'll fill in the missing people on, at the end. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Holly. I know who you are. So. Okay. So, and what, were the, what was the content? What, what? Uh, getting us to Christianity. Getting us to Christianity. Right. But he does say this one notable thing. Right. He says, where is it? He says. Um, he says something along the lines of, at, "Up to this point, I'm not even like a, I'm not even a hundred miles within the Christian God, right? Right? So he's still talking about how um, how well, let's see. Up, up to the end of book one, he's talking about the law and how it makes us uneasy, and then book two, he starts talking about." Um, well, the first chapter, Rival Conceptions of God. So beginning today, uh, the, the question at stake is, well, if we assume that there is, if we, if we agree that there is a God who, who we can understand simply to be um, the, the one who holds us to this objective moral standard, what do we know about, what do we know about that God, okay? 
uh, let's let's just sort of go through let's just sort of go through what he does here. Um, on, on the, on the, he makes a very important uh, point on these first two pages, pages forty and forty-one, um, and that is that Christianity is is both complicated and unexpected, but that's just like the rest of reality is, right? So if you hear the if you hear, I mean, you often hear people say, well. If God was really God, if there really was a God, and if He really did love us, then of course He would make things ever so simple, straightforward, right? He would just come and present Himself to me, and we'd have a chat, and then He'd sort everything out, right? You've heard that before, I'm sure. Um, well, so for one thing, we have no reason to expect that that's the way things work, because reality is complicated, and things happen in an unexpected way all the time. Um, he gives the example of what is it? The planets going around the sun. You'd expect that if you got a sun and planets rotating around it, you'd think of symmetry, right? You'd think, well, this, I, if I was going to build this solar system, I'd neatly order things so that these planets are all equidistant from the sun and they all, they all go in a nice line around, right? And, but that's not the way it is. They're not even circles. They're ellipses, right? And they're, they're not... It's, 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 they have a different number of moons. They have a different number of moons, right? Um, so so we shouldn't expect... We, we shouldn't expect that Christianity or true religion is going to be anything other than what we experience in reality. Um, and that, Holly, do you have a question? No, I mean, just, I thought he was making atheism like to simplify it though. Okay. Like that the regular atheist would be like, oh, I see your point exactly. Of course. Right. <laughs> Thinking is so simple-minded. Perfect. So, so now, okay, great. And this, I think this is very helpful for us, especially as we, as we proceed now to entertain the, op, the other side of the story. So what, what do you suppose the atheists would, would say in response? I don't know. I mean, if, you know, that they're not so dumb to think that there isn't complexity in life. Right, right. But there are some random right. happenstances. Uh, right. We might not all just be working toward a goal. Okay. Sure. Okay. So, so the atheists would would certainly, they would certainly acknowledge that the, the complexity of the university universe and the unexpectedness of it. Um, the so so the one thing that Lewis can hang his argument on here is is that you can't you can't hold religion to a different standard than you hold the rest of the, of reality to, right? Um, and and it's it's it's. So if, if you're going to do that, then, you're be, then, then your argument isn't, doesn't hold any water, right? So he's just sort of, dis, he, he's only discarding a, sort of a portion of what would be an atheistic argument at this point, right? But, it, but it's certainly true. Um, we shouldn't, we certainly shouldn't think that, um, that, that atheism is, is naive, right? Or that atheists are naive and that, and in fact, um, you, so one of the things, remember I, I talked a lot about this guy Jonathan Haidt back last semester, um, and his his uh, understanding of the righteous mind and moral intuitions, and one of the things that he firmly establishes is that people are people are rarely um, people are rarely acting out of complete ignorance, right? It's because they do they actually believe that they're holding a, con- a, a consistent position, right? It's not because it's not because they. It's not because they're they're willing to hold two things that are completely opposite that they're hold, willing to hold two positions that are contradictory, right? People don't do that. Um, they do believe that they're holding a consistent position, right? Um, and and so it's it's not simple it's not simple naivety or or you know what have you. Um, 
that, that atheism is holding to. So we, but it's important for us to engage that along the way here, to think about um, whether Lewis's argument holds water, um, because there have been lots of people who have argued against him. Right? And, one of the, and one of the challenges with Lewis, this is really one of the challenges in reading Lewis, is that um, his rhetoric is so, is so compelling that sometimes it's easy to, to um, exchange the weight of his rhetoric for the weight of his argument. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. To be, to, yeah, he's persuasive. Um, just as, just as like, a charismatic personality could, could get you to believe a lot of things that you wouldn't believe otherwise, right? So keep that in mind. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thing to keep in mind as we go here. A- any questions at this point? Okay. Let's see. Let's, let's flip the page um, in the book, um, page 42 to 43. He's, he's, asking, he's asking the question now, so we've got, we've got this situation. Um, what do we know about God? What do we know about the universe? And he says, well, there are two possibilities. Because, first of all, we say, and this is the, this is, I, this, I put this quotation on the sheet, and this is the first full paragraph on page 42. What is the problem? A universe that contains much that is obviously bad and apparently meaningless, but containing creatures like ourselves who know that it is bad and meaningless, right? So this is, this is the picture that we have based on his observations so far, right? There is, there is such a thing as good, and we know, it, we know it's good, but we don't do it, right? That's the picture. So where do you get out? How do you, what, what, what can your worldview be? Well, he gives two options. He says, there, according to Lewis, there are two options. The first view is the Christian view, that the world was originally good and went wrong, and then the alternate view is what he calls dualism, that there are two, and this is, this, is really key, this is really important, that there are two equal and independent powers, good and evil, in the universe that uh, just sort of are competing with each other. Um, but there's no, there's no sort of hierarchy among them. They're equal and they're independent. So this is a lot to think about here, but first of all, um, can you describe what the... What, what the can you describe the differences between this view of dualism and the Christian view? What are some of the ways these two views are different? Nancy? Well, the dualism, the good and the evil are equal. They're equal, and right. Clearly, in Christianity, the good is winning out. And, okay, so now, and then let's flesh that out a little bit. So it's winning out in, on the one hand because, because for instance, we know, we know how the story ends, right? But, also, but, but in another way, they're not equal. Well, yeah, they're not equal in that People have, they know, they know the bad is not good. <laughs> they know that bad is, is really subservient to the good. Okay. Well, uh, you know, it's the good that's twisted. Good, okay. Good. Holly. Yeah, I was just going to say, Christianity, um, evil stems from the perversion of all things that are good. Right. Whereas the dualism is like, they pre-existed equally, they made up, yeah, exactly. And now, if you want, if you want to, um, if you want to hold a position that's intellectually satisfying, uh, on one, on 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 the one hand, dualism is very nice because the opposite view, the Christian view, says that God is the creator of whatever has become evil. Right. So this is this is the way in which good and evil are not equal. Is that e- the evil is the perversion of something that God created, which was good. Right. Um, now, if you so, if you twist things, you say you you say finally, well, God is responsible for evil. Well, we don't. That's not that's not what we say. But that's how you guess how you could twist that. 
Um, and so it'd be, it'd be much easier, much more satisfying to say, well, evil is something completely independent. God is, God is in no way, God doesn't relate to evil at all. He just combats it, right? And this is where Christianity um, is unique among all religions. And this is something to hold in mind as we go through this, this discussion here. On, on the one hand, um, we, we often say things like, well, Christianity is unique because it's a religion where God serves you rather than you serving God, right? But it's also, and, perhaps, and I think perhaps even more so unique, because it's a religion in which God, in, God suffers evil, right? God suffers the perversion of the, the good thing that he created, right? Um, so that finally on the cross, um, Jesus, you know, experiences hell. God himself experiences what it is, what it is to have no God. Pastor Nelson showed me a, a clip from... I, 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 I walk into his office when I'm preparing for Bible study. This is great. I walk into his office and I say, I say like a single sentence and he says, I know, I, I got something to show you. And so he, he pops up this movie clip and it was great. It was this documentary um, that was reflecting on um, the movie The Last Temptation of Christ. Maybe, maybe you've seen it. Um, the, but the, the crucifixion scene, I haven't seen the movie in its entirety, but I saw just the crucifixion scene. And there's this interesting thing that happens where um, Jesus is despairing. He says, he says something along the lines of, Father, where are you, right? Um, and, of course, then this is where the last temptation of Christ is supposed to take place because all of a sudden he's tempted to get off the cross, right? Now, um, hopefully I'm not ruining the movie for anybody who hasn't seen it. I haven't seen it, so I'm ruining it for myself, too. So <laughs> it's all fair. But what happens in that moment, it's the same thing. Um, there's, a, there's this children's Bible um, that we read to our kids, and in the crucifixion scene, uh, I think I've told you this before, Jesus says, Papa, where are you? And the, the author says, for the first, and, and for the first time, um, there was no answer, right? So if you, if you sort of reflect on what that really means um, and how this makes Christianity unique, what it means is that God himself suffers the fate of, of the atheist, of the godless, of the one, he, he experiences what it's like to have no God, right? Um, and, and so that, that defines all of, all of Christian theology. Um, and it sets us apart from every other theology which says, for instance, that, um, that, that suffering, um, suffering is not uh, the path to righteousness or that, that life, life is all about glory, right? That's not what we say. At all. In fact, um, because of sin, uh, suffering is now the means, right? The suffering of Christ, which then we live out in our Christian lives as well. That suffering is the, is the means of righteousness, the means for, for salvation. That's why, um, that's why, although it was perverted, this, the 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 Mass, the Lord's Supper, was was it was understood as a sacrifice, right? Because this is. This is what's this, what needs to be done for you is um, God needs to be sacrificed. His body and blood needs to be sacrificed. Holly. I saw the crucifixion in a whole new way in regards to what C.S. Lewis was saying about that. And just that God never had experienced death. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. God and he's all-knowing. But he had to experience death for us to make it right. And, of course, we all know that, but, like, Right. He wouldn't, I don't know. If, did he ever plan that he was? Yeah. 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 
It, it, I mean, it, it, it is, so on the one hand, it's mind-boggling. On the other hand, so think about you as a, as a, as an, uh, you and yourself, and I mean, it's, it's trivial in comparison with how God, um, how God in his being has glory, but think about the things that you glory in and giving, and what it would mean for you to, to give them all up, right? To give up even your very identity. So the thing that makes God God is that God doesn't die, Right? Um, and God gives that up in order to save us. Um, it's yeah, you're right. It's I mean, it's it's striking. There's a lot uh, there's a lot to say about that, and that comes at the end of the section. At the end of the section we had um, for today. So let's hang on to that thought and do some more. Yeah, I mean, with the dualism from an atheist point of view, then you know the Christian God it, it can't be all that great. Can't be that can't great. Get rid of this. Right. Either. And this. this that's right. Okay, so now that you, you have, everybody, did I ever hear what Penny said? Um, the atheist response is, well, if, if dualism isn't the way things are, if, if the Christian God is somehow um, the origin of what has become evil, then he must not be that good after all, right? This, pro, this as you described it, that's called um, the, the crux theologorum, the cross of the theologian. It's, it's sort of the unanswerable question. Um, but that doesn't, and it's very, it's very dissatisfying to, to hold a position where you say, how can it be that an all good God allows evil to persist, right? And, and, and we might despair, um, if not for the fact that God suffered that evil himself, right? So, he, so in, in that sense, um, the answer is, is found precisely in Jesus, right? The, the, we, don't, we can't comprehend it. We can't say, well, why did things work out this way, right? But we do understand that God is um, uh, the one who, that, that, that God isn't sort of absent from the situation, just sort of absent-mindedly, oops, evil happened, right? No, he is, um, he's got the situation in, um, in his control so that he's using it to our advantage. Um, and, and Lewis identifies that too. He says, um, you know, we're, you might think that, that that this wasn't a good way to do things, but you're not God, so you don't get to you don't get to decide that, right? Um, but but really, that that is a it is a, it is a sticking point, um, and that's where um, the intellect and um, and the heart sort of uh, often conflict with each other, right? Um, and that's and that's where. Um, Things like the the Eucharist, where Jesus comes to us personally in the body and blood that He shed, you know, so in God's body and blood, where He's where He's basically He's saying, "Look, this is this is suffering. I have it. I've done it. I've I've endured it. I've endured death, um, which means that it's not outside my control, and I'm and I'm using it for your good. Um, that's the only way you can get out of it, right? That's the only way you can get out of that dilemma, Martha." And that's- interesting because the atheist and the agnostic, that so often is their argument. Well, look at what's happening. Right. Why can't he just fix it? So in that scenario, they're happy with a magic little answer. Yep. He can just go, who can make it all better? Right. But when they ask the question, why God? Right. Why do you believe in God because there's no scientific proof of that? They expect all manner of detail and us to be able to spout out all this stuff to prove it. Right. But yet, when it's convenient and things are difficult, they will accept and actually expect the magic 
has no right. science or proof behind it. Right. And this is, this is again, I, so I love Jonathan Haidt. And this, he, says something along, he says something that explains that, which is, um, we talked about this before too, when you hold a position, you look for a single piece of evidence to credit or discredit the opposite position, right? So if you're, if you're in the position of wanting to discredit God, all you, need, all you need is one thing, right? And, of course, the thing to be conscious of is that we do this all the time too. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how many times... I've been, uh, I've been trying to answer a question, and I, I know what I want the answer to be. And so all of my searches are, <laughs> like, in the direction of, <laughs> is this right? And all I, all I need to do is one, I need to find one article that says, yep, that's right, and then I'm good to go. Yeah, and, you know, this thing with free will, you know, I talked about, I mean, I've talked to one of my sons who claims to be an atheist at this point in his life, and, um, you know, he'll just dismiss this. But logically... If we have free will, there's no way, if, if we have free will and God suddenly, you know, intervenes magically, well, then there's no consequence. Right. And that's not really free will. Right. I mean, there's really no logical way you can give people free will and not have bad things happen. Right. And if these bad things didn't happen, I mean, if we didn't have free will, we'd just be autonomous, you know, just automatic little creatures. Right. And that wouldn't be very satisfying. Right. And as human beings, if we had a robot child who always did everything right, <laughs> Creepy, but on the other hand, <laughs> I'd experiment with that. <laughs> That's great. So now we get to we get to we get to that very argument in just a little bit. So let's 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 we're doing great. Uh, let's hang on here. Um, uh, Lewis is basic. Let me let's just now my outline. I don't want it to be a law here, but let's, so what is Lewis's argument against dualism? You see that highlighted right there? Um, next to the first bit of red text, it's in italics. What is Lewis's argument against dualism? That's where we are, okay? So his argument against dualism is it doesn't, it, it, it can't be because otherwise you have no reason to say that one is good and the other is bad. As soon as you say one is good and the other is bad, you're saying, well, there's something above them both, which is, which is better than both, right? It, it can't, otherwise it's arbitrary and you might as well just say, Bad is good, and good is bad, right? So another world standard. Right, exactly. It's, again, moral. It has to be a, I mean, okay, there's good and bad, but how do you know what's good and bad? Right, exactly. Yep, yep. Uh, they're just arbitrary labels that we're applying to it, yeah. right? Um, which is, in fact, a position that people often take, right? That's moral relativism. Good is, good is what I want it to be. Bad is what I want it to be. Um, and Luther, I, I give you um, his Heidelberg disputations here. Heidelberg Theses are the next page in your little handout here, and I'll just I'll just tell you I'll just we'll just look at one bit of it here. Um, where is it? Uh, number three, it's highlighted there. Although the works of man always seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. And then on the other hand, although n- number four, although the works of God are always unattractive and appear evil, they are nevertheless really eternal merits. Right. So Luther's point is that. And as fallen Christian, as fallen humans, we call good things bad and bad things good, right? We get it mixed up all the time, um, and and that's 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 why our wills, our the free will that we exercise, is in fact bound. We can't we can't make good choices. Holly. That's right. Exactly. Yep. The, the yeah. Although even our the very best things we do. Um, and Luther, Luther even, I mean, he says it in very stark ways. He says, 
unless you do, and this is, this is um, okay, so just, just so you know, this is early Luther, 1518. I, I'm wary about distinguishing between early and late Luther. This is 1518, 95 Theses and 1517. There's like 30 years of more theological writing that come after this. Um, and, he, and here he's, he's, um, he's really discovering the gospel still, okay? And, he's, and so he says things in very strong ways, ways that are true and can be properly understood, but they're not necessarily pastoral ways, right? But he says, um, a good work, let's see, where is it? Um, I should have highlighted it because then I would have been able to find it. Number 12, do you see number 12? Uh, nope, that's not it. Well, I'll just tell you what it says. I can't find it. He says, unless you fear that what you're doing is a mortal sin. Seven? Thank you. The works of the righteous would be mortal sins if they would not be feared as mortal sins by the righteous themselves out of pious fear for God. Do you see what he's saying? So you can't do anything good unless you think that you're only doing sin by doing it, right? Um, and, and, and this is the... This is, like, this is the, the conflict between humility and pride, right? So as soon as you feel like you're being humble, you're being proud about your humility, right? So th- and, and that's the diagnosis of everything good that people do. You, unless, un- unless, you, um, unless you always feared that what you were doing was a mortal sin, you would never do anything good. Now, um, this is where the grace of God is so helpful and a pastoral thing um, for Christians is that we can say, well, you don't have to fear God because Christ works in you, right? So um, forget about your own works. Look at Jesus' works, and they're all good, right? And that, so um, that, that's sort of the, the resolution to that. Um, okay, so we got Lewis's argument against... Any questions? You got Lewis's... You, you were furrowing your brow. Okay, okay. Penny. That's always hard to understand. Yes. And the way that I think of it, so tell me if I'm wrong, is you have a preschooler who's trying to clean up a mess. The heart is in the right place. They're really trying to surprise you with this. Mm-hmm. It's not a very good job. I mean, you know, I mean, they did the best they could, and we do the best we can. It's still crummy, you know. But God forgives that and says. In it, so in 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 um, there's there's a couple dimensions to that. So, on the one hand. Um, in, in, in what we would call the horizontal realm, right? That does, that's not in view of God at all. Um, we do lots of good things, right? So it's good to be, uh, it's good to, you know, it's good to, to feed your family, right? It's good to teach preschoolers, right? Those are good things. Um, but when, as it pertains to God, everything that we do is not, even if it's our, even if it's our best effort, is not only um, a poor effort, but it's, it's violence against God. This is the really hard thing to, to understand. It's violence against God because we're not doing it in faith. We're not doing it trusting in Jesus, right? So think of the most charitable person you know. Um, apart from Jesus' merit, uh, that, that deed might be good for the person for whom he, 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 to whom he gives charity, right? But in God's eyes, it's a damnable sin because it's, with, it's apart from Christ. Does that make sense? That's, that's if, the, if there's no faith, if there's no faith. Um, and that's because, it's not because 
like he didn't do it the right way or his or his or his heart wasn't in the right place or because he was thinking about it all wrong or because he thought he'd get a little something out of it it's because he's a sinner right so it has to do with your with your nature now this is the this is the again a really a really tricky thing about sin um and another tough position to hold, but this is the way the Bible talks about us. Sin is not something external to us that just sort of sticks on us like, you know, like like glue on, gum on Nathaniel's pants, right? It's not like that. Where if I work really hard, I can scrub it off, right? Um, it isn't also. It, it, neither is it the case that um, we are sin. So like, as though Nathaniel's pants are. Um, this analogy is going nowhere good, but as though Nathaniel's pants are um, uh, the problem themselves, right? But the gum is so uh, ingrained in his pants that it can't be removed except by burning the pants, right? It's not the fault of the pants. It's not the, it's not the pants. This, the, maybe, I don't know if theologically this analogy holds up, <laughs> but you've but you, but you got to burn the pants, Okay. Because everything he touches, everything he sits on, this is, no, this is really working well. He sits on my couch, which is, which I, I'd love it if, you know, it's nice if he sits on my couch. He gets gum all over the couch, even though, even though there's nothing, there's nothing, these pants are fine, right? He's got great, he's got great pants, but this gum, the gum is, so the, the way the Lutheran confessions talk about this, to, to easier, to, 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 to make it easier to understand why this is so hard to understand, the Lutheran confessions say, that among that there are certain things that in theology that we talk about that are of a of a unique character. So, for instance, the fact that Jesus is both God and man, we don't have any analogy to describe that. Right? You can try. You could say things like, uh, well, people have tried. They said it's like two two the human nature and the divine nature. It's like two planks being stuck together and they're in one person. But that's not it because those two planks are inseparable. When Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he's still man. He still has his human nature. It's not going anywhere, right? Um, it, so it's a new category of, of union. That's what, that's what they say. Well, the same thing is true of sin. Normally, when we talk about things, we say either a thing is, um, like, think about the gum. So either, either um, the gum is external to his pants or it is his pants. It's one or the other. Well, when it comes to sin, we're saying it's a new kind of a thing. So his pants are now gummy. You know what I mean? Inseparable, right? Except, so, right. I'm going to have to test this analogy in my office <laughs> a little bit. Um, because it, because, it, because you, you, could still, you can still imagine in your mind a way where you might be able to get the gum out of the pants, right? I, if, you, if you thought about it and you worked really hard, you might still be able to get the gum out of the pants. But, it's, but it is so bad that you can't. So what that means is um, everything that's done in those pants is bad. Well, now see that's 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 taking it that's and that's and that's what's so tempting to do is to take it to the next step. It's it's not that the fibers of the pants turn into gum, and neither is it that the gum is separate from the pants. It's something new. It's a different way of talking. It's a new category of, of thing. Um, because and here's the reason why it's so important to say that the fiber of the pants does not become gum. Everybody following the analogy so far? I would feel okay. All right. So the the reason why we can't say that is because. Um, we are we. So let's turn talk, talk about humans again. We are creatures of God, whom God created to be good, and our human nature 
hasn't, hasn't changed from human nature. We're still humans. Um, we're still, we're still uh, creatures of God. Um, we've lost the image of God, but um, it's not our substance. Our substance didn't turn from human to sin. Does that make sense? We didn't turn from human to sin, but we became human sinners. Okay, Krista. Uh, <clears throat> Pastor, I, I just had one time, uh, a hard time, and you do something good, and you said, um, and it's still sin. Is that that you say to yourself, oh, I did this good. I did, I had somebody. And, and then um, in the reverse, as I said, you would say to yourself, I'm good. So, so, right, good. So the, so the praise that you give yourself for doing good, here's the way to think of it. It's one symptom of the fact that you don't do good, right? Of that your deeds are. Now, now it's very, very important to always remember that um, we are talking about, in the first place, um, the, the, those, uh, uh, separate from Christ, right? So in Christ, everything is different. Um, all of, in Christ, all of the things that you do, even the things that you think are worthless, are forgiven, and that makes them and, and redeemed, right? And so then, so so. But you're right. Um, the fact that you would say about it, oh, I oh I did so good, that that is in a sense a symptom of the fact that that's one way in which it isn't good. Holly. Maybe Right. Yet. Okay. Yeah. But because they're born Right. They possess sin. Right. They're they're not gonna they're not willfully sinning, but they are sinners. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. So yeah. So you'd never. Exactly. You'd never say about a baby what a you know what a rotten little baby unless except except when you are bringing the baby to the baptismal font, and then you say, what a rotten little baby. Let's fix this right now. You know what I mean? Just so you know, you've just completed, uh, like, two classes of, at the seminary of uh, a class on the formula of Concord. I'm going to get, I'll, I'll get you some credit. This is, I mean, wait, this is great. I'm really, I'm really impressed with it. <laughs> this is good. Um, and do you have any questions? This, this um, the way we talk about sin is very, very important because... Um, uh, the temptation is always so is always present to um, to want to downplay the, the the danger of sin or the the depth of our sinfulness. I th- I feel this personally. Um, a good example is I feel this personally um, with with my sister who's who's an atheist, um, and uh, it's very very hard for me to think of her as completely depraved, right? She works for a women's shelter in Washington D.C. She right, you know, right. So um, it's very, very hard to think of her that way. And I love her because she's my sister. Um, and that, so, of course, and again, pastorally and and relationally, of course, you don't say things like, "I don't always lead by saying, hey, depraved sister, you're going to hell.'" <laughs> right? That doesn't work. In fact, that's that's the article here. Let's see, turn to page, well, I should have put page numbers, page four. But wait, doesn't the law work? 
you see at the end, the very last paragraph, Jesus is the one who laid down his life for us. This is love, and this engenders love. Jesus offers us his good works in exchange for our bad ones, requiring nothing in return. This is love, and this engenders love. When we're exhausted from all the yelling, both by us and at us, Jesus calmly says, it is finished. This is love, and it works. And and above that, the the paragraph, uh, um, the law can break a heart, but only the gospel can restore one. The law uh, breaks a heart, but only love can engender love, right? Um, So now I have forgotten where we were going. Um, (laughs) About my sister, right? Okay, so so that's why that's why it's so so it's it's so hard. This is again conflict between the intellect and your passions, right? We see this all the time. So we know what the Bible says about people and how crummy they are, um, and we know people and we don't feel like they're very crummy. Um, some people we feel they're pretty crummy, but other people we, we feel like they're not very crummy, um, and somehow somehow we have to live in that sort of tension, knowing that knowing what God says, which is why we don't why we so desperately. Um, you know, why, why we so desperately want forgiveness for people? Because, because without it, uh, uh, because, because if they don't know, um, then if they don't know, if they, if they don't know what the Bible says, if they don't know what God says, um, if, they don't, if they don't know um, what right and wrong are, then they, then they never feel they have a need for forgiveness, right? I came not to save the righteous, but sinners. Martha. Again, going back to, Right. And we're discussing this. Yep. And, you know, kind of, you know, trying to get our hands around it. And the agnostic or the atheist, in addition to why isn't God saving these people, that's the question they ask. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I work at the soup kitchen. Right. I blah, 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 blah. You know, so how on earth you try to be a witness, you know, deliver this message of. This is, I mean, the, n- never at any other point have I found prayer to be more comforting because you, because you, as you realize very, very quickly that, that, you, that, there, that there are no words that you can say, no words of your own that you can say that will, that will make any difference, right? And, and um, that we fall into this trap. I'm a, I'm a fixer, right? So I, I, if, if you come to me with a problem, just so you know, my first instinct is going to be to fix it. I'm, I'm working on that. But... Uh, <laughs> But that's where uh, that's where prayer um, is in in a sense our our repentance, right? When we pray, we're repenting of our efforts to save other people, of our efforts to do the Holy Spirit's work. When we pray, we we say, "Jesus, you do what I can't do," right? Okay, Krista. I think uh, because I have a brother too, I just, um, but I think. When you are not a Christian, you are not realizing that you are a sinner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just um, uh, my sister-in-law, she is self-righteous. Um, mm-hmm. She doesn't do anything bad. Mm-hmm. But we don't have a relationship. Right. You know, so, right. Um, and then I came to realize uh, that when you are, uh, um, you can't, and I had a friend, and she said, I, when I see the Christian going to church, I'm much, much better than they are. Uh-huh. You know, so yep. um, from if, if they are not sinning, or right. they are not realizing right. that. Um, and, in, and, and here's, this is where it's tricky, of course, because 
if you're gonna if you're gonna measure it in, in terms of like external works, like doing good things, very very often they're right, right? So you look around and, and they'd say, "I'm way better than these church people. I'm way better than these church people," right? Um, and if that was the standard, the things that they were holding in their mind, if those were the standards, then they would be right. Um, the reason why they're wrong, though, of course, is that the standard is God's standard, and we as Christians don't say we live up to that standard better. We say we all stink at it, right? We are, we're all so bad at it. We all fail. So why aren't they doing even more? I mean, that's the, if you were really so good, yeah. why aren't you opening up your house to these homeless people and letting them all live with you? Sure. And cooking for them and spending 100% of your income. I mean, when I have to wait for the life together to remind me that Milton Township needs stuff, so then I yeah. think, okay, I'll get some toilet paper. Well, why didn't I get 20 things of toilet paper? Why didn't I <laughs> right, spend right. my entire grocery budget on stuff for somebody else? Because whatever we do isn't going to be enough, and it's the same for them, too. Right. But ours is forgiven. Yeah, right, right. And, and we're absolved from having to... Uh, having to do, having to, for one thing, save ourselves by doing those things, right? And we're also, I mean, Jesus uses the word neighbor for a reason, I think, um, because. So if you if you if you imagine that you're going to that you're going to save the world, you have a big task in front of you, right? <laughs> right? And it's not going to work. Um, but if you, but you have neighbors who need your help, right? And you and and those and those, and that's where uh, um, you know. You, again, you're free to, 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 to serve your neighbor and meet your neighbor's needs. Okay. Yeah, way to go. I'm really impressed. This is, this is a lot of fun. Um, okay, let's, let's move on just a little bit here. Um, okay, just read. Go back to the first page there. He has a quotation on page 45, which describes, again, what we've been saying about the relationship between God and evil, okay? Just to sum it up, evil is a parasite, not an original thing. The powers which enable evil to carry on are powers given it by goodness. Um, and, and he says then later, we're in enemy-occupied territory, okay? So, so that's the position um, that the Bible, the Bible teaches. It's, it's a position that a lot of people like to argue against, as we've, as we've, as we've talked about. Um, but that's the position, and... Um, once again, the, the thing that the, the resolution to that is only found in the suffering of Jesus. And when you play, when you play that out, you see, you see how this works. You see And, and, and Lewis, I mean, I, I wish we were going I don't think we we're going to get there to chapter four, but, I, but Lewis um, has some really great things to say about, about Jesus. So any, uh, any questions? Let's move on to chapter. Y- yes, please, Barb. I hope this isn't getting off the subject. But something that I've thought about, and, and maybe I am starting to see it with our discussion, is when we go to heaven, what is stopping evil from then happening again? Because aren't we going to have free will in heaven? Or is... We will. Um, we will be in Christ. And, um, and, and so, so in, in corporation... Earth, it's, this is a whole new Eden. Right, that's right. Um, this is uh, we don't have we don't have a good way to describe it because we don't know the details, right? But in baptism, you are you are in Christ, you are a new creation, um, and you're united with God Himself. 
right? Um, and so, and on Earth, it's not fully realized um, uh, for for whatever reason. We don't, right? That's another another question that we we, we can't answer, right? But but in heaven, um, your union with God um, makes you perfect, right? So He takes away everything that um, that that uh, all, all He takes away all of the baggage, all of the all of the wrong decisions. But he doesn't make you not human. He doesn't take away your free will. But you won't choose the evil anymore, right? Um, so, and that's a kind of a tricky thing to think about. So, um, it's the opposite situation that we have right now, right? So we have free will, but we only choose evil. Okay. So we have free will, but we only choose evil. Our will is, in that sense, bound, right? We are deciding people. We make decisions but we only ever choose the wrong thing. In heaven, it's the opposite. Our will is liberated. Our will is set free so that we choose the good. Holly. Um, okay, so you were born again in our baptism. Yes. Because we were born into sin, but then we are renewed in our baptism. So when we get to heaven, it's not a, it's not a rebirth, it's just an extension of the... It's the fulfillment, fulfillment. Yeah, the per- the perfection. What uh, what God, well, the good work that God has begun in you, He will bring to completion. Yeah. So it's in us. That's right. Which is why which which is why um, it's it's right to talk about how our wills are being transformed. Right. So, for instance, the 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 reason why you desire to do good and not evil, and and not just like good in the sense of. Um, the way, it, it, the reason why you seek God's will, is because He's begun a good work in you, right? Jane. I guess I look at it like the devil's a roaring lion running around the earth, mm-hmm. but Revelation tells us that He's going to be thrown into the that's right fire, whatever pit of fire, right? And he's not going to be roaming heaven. Right. And our transformation will be complete. Right. In that we are now that new person that we have to bring forth every day in baptism. That's right. We are going to be that person. That's right. Ultimately forever. Yep. That's right. That's right. That's a tricky question. Good. That's a good good question. Um, um, and it's 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 among those things that um, well speculation is is tempting. Um, uh, so and and uh, so <laughs> we try not to speculate too hard. <laughs> exactly right. So and 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 that's right. So what what God, it's exactly right. What God says to you is, you will be glorified. And there will be no more tears or, or weeping or pain or suffering, right? And um, you will shine like the you will shine like the sun, right? So how that's going to be? Your guess is as good as mine, but he says it's going to be, and the guarantee is Jesus' death and resurrection, right? That's the pledge. I mean, that's that's the that's the language that we that's used in the Lord's Supper, right? This cup is the New Testament in my blood. New Testament. Uh, diatheke, that's the Greek word. It's last will and testament. This is Jesus signing the piece of paper saying, 
this, this, is, this is the guarantee that on the last day, everything's going to be what I said it's going to be. It's all going to be yours, right? Um, that, that, so so um, that's how we, that's how, it's, it's an article of faith. It's what we believe, and that's how we, that's how we know it. So, good question. All right, let's see what else we can do here. Let's pause for a moment of levity. Um, turn to the second to last page in your thing, your handout. This, uh, uh, the Onion, you know, you know The Onion. It's this satirical news source. Now, the great thing about satire is that it pokes fun of things that people, everybody knows are true, right? So this article, Law-Abiding Citizen Keeps Herself on Track with Weekly Cheat Day. Um, you can guess where the article is going to go. I'll just read a portion of it to you. Saying that sometimes she needs just a little break from her daily regimen, Law-Abiding Citizen Karen Garver told reporters Tuesday that she keeps herself on track with a weekly cheat day in which she allows herself to commit any crime she wants. I'm pretty strict Sunday through Friday, but come Saturday, I tell myself it's okay to bend the rules a little and improperly dispose of hazardous substances or rob the liquor store. Okay? <laughs> now... What's great about this? What's great about this is that uh, it points out the fact that there there are no breaks from law, from the law, right? There's no such thing as a cheat day, and that's that's really one of the points that that Lewis is making. It's one of the things that we all know in the back of our head that everybody knows in the back of their head is that there is this law that, and that when there is law, there's no there's no cheating it. It's all it always applies. It's always there. Um, and and that and that sets up the situation that uh, that uh, that sets up the argument that that Lewis was making. Anyway, um, I always it's great it's great when we get these kinds of insights um, from from popular sources. Um, okay, back to the back to C.S. Lewis. Do you have any questions? Does that make sense? All right. Now uh, we can we can breeze through a couple of things here. He begins on page forty-seven, chapter three. Um, with, with this question, how can anything happen contrary to the will of a being with absolute power? That's the first quotation you see on the front page of your handout under chapter 3. Um, how can anything happen contrary to the will of a being with absolute power? We've talked about this a little bit, but Lewis's answer um, is, is in that center paragraph on page 47. And let me just read it so that we can all, we can all hear what he says here. Anyone who has been in authority knows how a thing can be in accordance with your will in one way, and not in another. It may be quite sensible for a mother to say to the children, I'm not going to make you go to and make, your tidy, make tidy the schoolroom every night. You've got to learn to keep it tidy on your own. Then she goes up one night and finds the teddy bear and the ink and the French grammar all lying in the grate. That is against her will. She would prefer the children to be tidy. But on the other hand, it is her will which has left the children free to be untidy. The same thing arises in any regiment or trade union. You make a thing voluntary, and then half the people do not do it. Uh, that is not what you will, but your will has made it possible. Everybody, does that make sense? Does that argument make sense? Okay. Cool. Let's turn the page. I had a lot of things I wanted to, I wanted to talk about um, Satan and, and how Satan came, and, and, and about about the source of evil in the world. But let's, um, we're just so short on time. Um, is there, let, let me, let's do this, just so that we don't leave anything hanging. Is there anything about these next two chapters, any questions outstanding, anything that you want to talk about in particular? Or should I just pick something and go with it? 
Okay. What is this? Some people think the fall of man has something to do with sex, but that is a mistake. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. I understand. Yeah. It's like, well, it's like the temptation of that. Yeah, I, I suppose you could you could sexualize that scene somehow. Right. Yeah. If you didn't if you didn't read the story, <laughs> you could you could maybe do that. Uh, but um, right. So, but what now? Good. So, but what is it about? If it's not about sex, what is it about? About power, okay. Um, idolatry. Idolatry, okay. Yeah, and and in, and ultimately, idolatry is, um, is is crafting God in in your own image, right? And so, in a sense, wanting to be God yourself, right? Um, which is the sin of Satan. He wants to be God, doesn't want to be subservient to God. And that's the sin that he tempts Adam and Eve into committing, right? So that they that they could be like God. We did Genesis three a couple of weeks ago, um, and that's that's uh, that's the story. That's uh, that. And C.S. Lewis will later say pride is sort of. I mean, it's the root of all sin, right? Wanting to be put yourself put yourself first, right? Which manifests itself in all kinds of different ways, but but finally, it is a violation of the first commandment: "You shall have no other gods." Well. When you make yourself God, or when you claim to be God yourself, however you do it, um, that's that's the sin. That's the sin of unbelief. Surely. He states that very clearly in forty-nine, where he says, "The moment you have a self at all, there is possible to put yourself through." Right. You know, wanting to be the, to be the center to God is that yep. sin of Satan, and that. so he he lays it out very yep. clearly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yep, exactly. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so the, and the, then let's do this uh, for the next five minutes. Let's just make sure we understand everything else that's going on in chapter three here. Page fifty. He asks at the bottom of the uh, bottom of page fifty. He says, "We got this problem. Um, we've got everybody trying to be their own god. And what did God do? Okay, and he gives he gives, he gives three things that God did. First of all, he left us conscience." the sense of right and wrong. And all through history, there have been people trying, some of them very hard to obey. None of them ever quite succeeded. So that's one thing. Conscience two, he sent the human race what I call good dreams. Now, this is very interesting, and there's a lot of... Um, if, if we had... if We had we could spend a whole lot of time talking about this. But he's talking about those... those he says, I mean those queer stories scattered throughout all through the heathen religions about a God who dies and comes to life again and by his death has somehow given new, me- new life to men. You, you know that, um, uh, at least this is what I've heard, and I've heard it from, re- from pretty reliable sources, um, that among, and maybe you've heard it too, among Muslim converts, right, um, most often the conversion is prompted by a dream, right? Um, and, it, and which in a sense, you know, so we rely on scripture for God's truth, but in a sense... Um, it doesn't. It doesn't exclude the possibility that God has, that that, that there are sort of that there's sort of latent in humanity this this the, this story, right? That God is going to become man and save His people, or that or that's what's needed to save humanity. Um, and so C.S. Lewis sees that as one of God's one of God's efforts. Now it's it comes up short though because if because if it's not Jesus, um, then it doesn't do you any good, right? Um, or if it leaves something left for you to do, something left for you to accomplish, it's not salvation. 
So those are the, those are two things. Third thing, third thing, and now this is there's another here a whole other discussion we could we could and should have. He selected one particular people, um, and this is another this is this is something that atheists uh, argue about all the time. Why would God reveal Himself only to one people? He selected one particular people and spent several centuries hammering into their heads the sort of God He was that there was only one of Him and that He cared about the right about right conduct. Those people were the Jews, and the Old Testament gives an account of the hammering process. Okay, so now the reason why that can be troubling is because you, you, you've, if you're sympathetic or compassionate, you say right away, "Well, what about all those other people, right? That the, those people who weren't part of that one particular race?" Um, and um, I don't have time to answer that question right now. So, <laughs> but, I'm gonna, but I think it's a good one to, to talk about. And so I'm going to make a note and see if Pastor Nelson can talk about it a little bit next week. It's one, one way to describe it is called the scandal of particularity. Why the Jews and not other people? Um, but it happened. But it, the yeah. means, it, it, so, it, it, so it happened that way. It did. The end was everybody. That's, that's right. <laughs> so that Paul comes along and says, Look, it's not about your race at all, in fact. Um, it's about faith. Children of Abraham are children of Abraham not by blood, but by faith. Abraham, the man of faith. Um, and the same is true even in the, even in the Old Testament, um, where it seems like God has, has um, set, the boundaries as, set the boundaries of salvation um, along national borders. There are all kinds of outsiders, right? I mean, yeah, Ruth? There's Gentiles right. in Christ's lineage. Right, exactly, exactly. So now, so now the question is, um, what use is it that God revealed himself to this one particular people? Um, and, and, and so um, I'll, see, I'll, I'll mention it to Pastor Nelson and see if he can talk about that a little bit next week. Um, but, that, but there's often an objection made there. Okay, we've got to stop. Um, page 50 is where we landed. Um, any questions? Keep on the same reading schedule, so that so that we're only we did half of it today, but I think um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was time time well spent, and um, there may be there may there certainly will come points later on where there's less to talk about. Um, Krista, I thought it was so wonderful when he wrote um, uh, fifty seven. He puts a little of his love into us, and that is how we love one another. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it, so you, you think about the, the reason why uh, the picture of God as Father is so important to um, describe his relationship to humanity. It's because, in, it's, because, it's not because God's relationship to humanity is a reflection of human relationships, but because human relationships are a reflection of God's relationship to, to his children and, and the relationship of the Father to the Son and so forth. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, that's the way... Okay, let's close with prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thank you very much.